Our scripture this morning is uh, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be Turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Heavenly Father, God, as we take these next few moments and we open your word. Lord, I pray that you would remove all distractions from us in this moment. That, Lord, you would remove the distractions of issues in our life, Lord, things that we carry around with us that weigh us down, and Lord, those things that can get in the way of us hearing and understanding your word, Lord, I pray that you would remove those distractions this morning. God, that we may receive, as the book of James tells us, the implanted word which is able to save our souls. God, I pray that through these next few moments, you and you alone would be glorified. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we've been journeying through the letter of James and through this study. I believe it's become clear, at least it has to me, and I'm sure many of you, that James is not a loose collection of proverbs put together, but James is actually building an argument for what it means to have, as he refers to, pure and undefiled religion, or we have been saying, a genuine faith. In fact, it reached its pinnacle in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1, when James says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, I mentioned this several weeks ago, but it's important to mention it again because of the section of the scriptures that we have arrived to. He gave us three attributes in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1. And if you remember, I, I phrased them in the form of a question, or three questions rather, um, tests, if you will, to see if you have genuine faith. That's really what James is referring to. And I phrased them this way, if you think you are religious or if you think you have genuine faith, the first thing he said is or asked is, do you control your tongue? Do you control your tongue? The second one was, do you care for the helpless and the needy? And finally, do you remain holy 
in relation to the world. It becomes increasingly clear that James is writing according to these three major things in the book of James. Um, The first of which we see uh, from James uh, 2, 1 through 26, where he discusses what it means to ignore the needs of others or to mistreat others because they are not the same as us which refers back to uh, asking the question, do you care for the helpless and the needy? And then, of course, last week and uh, previous week, we talked about the the test of genuine faith when it comes to our speech and how we use our words. In James 3, 1 through 18, because he tells us, in fact, we do not have genuine faith if we cannot bridle or control our tongues. And the reason I'm bringing this up again is because this morning marks um, the third break in, in that section the, to answer the question, do you remain holy in relation to the world? And that's really beginning in, in James 4, as you, read, as you heard Brother Ron read moments ago, uh, begins in verse 1 of chapter 4 and goes all the way through chapter 5, verse 12. And he gives us explanations as we go through the end of this book. He gives us explanations of what it looks like to act like the world. What it looks like when God's people act like the world. Now I'll tell you, it's, it's shocking to me, and I think it's intended to be so. It, it's interesting, really, that if you look back, if you look with me in James 3, and, and you look at verse 17 and verse 18... It says, but the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now I hear that, and, and, and for me, if you're just reading it, and it's the first time you've ever read the book of James, you get there and you, I feel like you could almost give a little bit of a sigh of relief. Because if you've been, through here, you've been here through this study in James, as I said before, James is kind of, um, if you were to put him in relation to some sort of athletic uh, pursuit, James is a bare-knuckle boxer. He, he just, every time you think you can stop, he just punches you square in the teeth. And, and, and it feels like in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3, it's like you can finally relax because he's talking about peace and sowing peace and righteousness. And then it's as if it would almost seem that James just has this jolt for a second where he goes, wait, wait, I'm not done with you yet. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He just goes right back to it. You thought it was over. Right? You ever been in an argument with your spouse? You thought it was over. Right? And it just comes right back at you. <laughs> but how often have you heard someone tell a story about the church that they used to go to or the church they grew up in? And you hear them uh, share stories that we'll just say, without going through a litany of them, they are, quote, less than flattering. I'd like to say I certainly recognize there are times when God's people have to stand up for the truth of God and, and that can cause issues in the church. And that's not what James is talking about. He'll make that clear here momentarily. But most of those less than flattering stories, and, and to be honest, most everyone has them. When we look at those, what we'll find at the root is that there was gossip, there was backbiting, there was mistreatment, there was selfishness, there was anger, there was mistrust of leadership, there was leadership's mistrust of the people. There were all kinds of things, and the list could really go on forever as we list all of these things that caused it. But really, when we look down at the the root of these issues, what we recognize is that all of those things did nothing but tear apart the work of God in that place. In fact, it does nothing but sow discord among God's people, which in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, God makes very clear he doesn't just dislike that, he hates it. 
And I'm pretty certain when God does something, he does it with the fullness of his being. And to hear that God hates something means he hates it with the fullness of his being. He hates discord among his people. So what we see here this morning and what the Lord would have us to understand is this. Worldly discord has no place in the life of genuine faith. Worldly discord has no place in the life of genuine faith. Discord within the body is a serious issue. And the reason it is a serious issue is because, connected to those three main things, it is not holy and unstained from the world. It follows, as we just looked back, it is connected somewhat. It follows what we just looked at. It is the wisdom of the world and not the wisdom of God. See, when we look at those two types of wisdom, as we did last week, what we find is that if we will operate according to the wisdom of God, the wisdom that is from above, it removes all discord from the church. But most of the time, we focus entirely on what we want and what we self-centeredly focus on, what we feel we need, and this is when we have problems in the church. We should ask ourselves. This is kind of the question to ask ourselves this morning. What is it that I actually want in life or in the church? What is it that I actually want? Because when we answer this honestly, not what we know people want to hear, not what you would think I want to hear or what God would want to hear, when we're honest, most of, the, most of the time it has to do with what we want selfishly for our own comfort and our own satisfaction. It's purely about me. Everything ends on me. And what we need to see from this text this morning, what, what the Holy Spirit inspired James to write in James 4, the first thing we see is that our individual desires are the source of our corporate problems. Our individual desires are the source of our corporate problems. Now, as I said, this one is... is um, I was talking to Pastor Will this week. And uh, we were talking through sermons. We talk through the sermons every week. If you didn't know this, but here and at, at South Campus, we align our sermons. And so we're preaching the exact same text this morning. And we had lunch and... Uh, I said, well, hey, man, how are you feeling about James? Like, how's it going? You know, how's it feeling or whatever? And he said, I am not looking forward to this Sunday. And I said, why? And he said, man, what causes quarrels and fights among you? And I said, yeah, I know. Um, the, the thing is, is James, uh, you know, I, I had someone, I had a, an older lady one time, first church that I ever was the senior pastor at. I, I was 25 years old. And, uh, you know, high attendance Sunday, about 35, 40 people. And uh, I got done preaching. I was in the back. You know, people come, oh, that's so great. Oh, that's so great. You remind me of my grandson, that kind of stuff. And, and then a lady came through and she said, preacher, I got a problem. I thought, oh, man. She said, see, you've been preaching and I've really been enjoying it. But this morning you got to meddling. James is all about meddling. James just likes to get all up in your business and all up into mine and say, hey, by the way, the way you think, it's wrong. The way you talk, it's wrong. The way you act with each other, wrong. So fix it. That's what he says in this passage this morning. And that's what I want to let you know ahead of time. Uh, the first few verses are kind of rough. But James actually gives us hope in the midst of these verses uh, this morning. But the first thing he asks is this. He has really a rhetorical question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? This was a corporate problem because this is, these are plural yous. Uh, like I've said before, this fits perfectly for someone from Texas. You could read it this way. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among y'all? That's what he's asking. 
what, what's going on in the body. So this is a reference directly to the church. He said, what causes these things? Is it not this? So this is his way of saying, this is what it is. I'm just telling you. This is what it is. That your passions are at war within you. Literally, your desires. Your desires. It consistently has the meaning, this word, of evil desires. It is the seeking for fulfillment of personal wants and desires apart from the will of God. That's what this word means. And if you have an older translation, it reads, Is it not this that your passions are at war within your members? Right now, your members, you say, well, is he members like local church? Well, we use the term members that way. When he says members, when they say members in the New Testament, they mean members of your body, like your fingers and your hands and stuff, members of your body. That's why we use the body analogy to refer to the church, that we're all parts of the body. We are members. That's why we use that word. And so he says, it's this in and among the people of God. It is your passions that are at war within you. Now, this should let us realize something. He says, is it not this that your passions are at war? This is a constant battle that the church has to fight. It's not something that we can allow to happen. It's something that we have to, in the words of that great philosophical um, uh, leader and, and thinker and theologian, Barney Fife, it is something that we have to nip in the bud. You cannot allow it to happen because when you allow it to build, it will take over. Why? Because it is constantly at war within you. You will constantly. I can tell you this. Any of the, uh, the, the ministers on staff, any of the staff can tell you that the constant thing that we could deal with more than anything is the fact that so, what somebody wants is not the same as what somebody else wants and it causes problems. And it's a constant battle. It's a constant battle. He says, isn't that what's causing this? Isn't that what's causing fights and quarrels among you? Look what he says in verse 2. You desire and you do not have. So, so they want something, but they're not getting it. And it causes frustration. It causes anger. It causes them to be overwhelmed in, 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 in the sense of they feel uncomfortable constantly because they're not getting what they want. But then look at the next phrase, because this phrase should be shocking to each and every one of us. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. I'm pretty sure that if James is writing to the church, he'd have way more to say than just you desire and you do not have, so you murder. What James is referring to is this is the logical outcome of what it looks like to have frustrated desires over an extended period of time. Basically, it will lead you to the worst possible thing you can think of. In fact, he tells us this in verse 16 of chapter 3. Verse 15 and 16. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and spiritual and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. He's, he's building an argument to say, when you only think about yourself and what you like, it will lead you to any and every kind of evil possible. Like I said last week, that's why when we look at churches and they're having these kind of issues, that's why sometimes you, something happens and you say, I never in a million years would have thought X, Y, Z. Except James says that's exactly what happens when your own selfish ambitions and your own desires, your own passions and all those things are allowed to run amok. It will eventually lead to frustrated desires that will bring forth the worst kind of evil. You say, well, I have never been a part of a church where someone has been so frustrated that they have murdered another person. James's brother, Jesus Christ, in the Sermon on the Mount, said, You have heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if you have hated your brother, you have committed murder in your heart already. You may have not seen anyone actually end another person's life, but I can promise you this. Unchecked desires and unchecked selfish ambition within the church has caused murder because brothers and sisters will come to a place where they will hate one another. So he says, you do these things 
It will lead to this. It, so you murder. Look at the second part of the verse. You covet and you cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. You want what others have. Whether it's a possession or a position, you want what others have. And he says you covet, but you can't get it. This is that frustrated desires. But then look what he says. He says, you ask and you do not receive. Now, he says you ask and you do not receive. And there are two reasons. Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So in this translation, uh, we're told that he says you ask and you do not receive. Well, we also know that it's, sometimes it's simply because you do not ask, as some of the older translations say. But in this one, it says, because when you ask, you want to spend it on your own desires. What does that look like in the church? It looks like in the church, going to the Lord in prayer and saying, God, can you please put me on this committee or this group? Because I need to, I, they need to fix some stuff, and I need to get in there and fix some things, because I don't like the way this is running. Well, what did he just say? He says, you ask and you do not receive. And why do you not receive? Because you want God to do something so you can fulfill your own passions and your own desires. See, we need to be real careful when we read this. When we read desires, we read passions, we always give it a sexual connotation. It doesn't even have a sexual connotation here. It has to do with things we want that are outside of the will of God. So he says, you spend it on your own passions, your evil desires. Verse 4. This sounds really great for a pastor to say to his parishioners, you adulterous people. Exclamation point. You adulterous people. Why? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He says, you're adulterous. Why? You're adulterous because you are not faithful to God. You are faithful to your own desires. You want your stuff and not what God wants. You want what you desire and not what God desires. He's saying you're adulterous because your allegiance is supposed to be to God and instead your allegiance is to what you want. You adulterous people. Why? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Hear this. If it, and it is. It's based on, do you keep yourself holy and unstained from the world? He says, all these things, desiring to fulfill your own ambitions, your own uh, passions, your own desires, those things. He says, that's not just a slight problem. That's not just a little bit of an error. That's not just a character flaw. There is never a reason in the church where when somebody acts like this, you cannot give the excuse, well, you just have to understand that's the way he is. Or that's the way she is. No, that's the way the world is. Because that's what he says. When you act this way, you're adulterous. And the reason you're adulterous is, look, because do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? James is saying, look, when you act like this and all you want is your own desires and your own things, you're not just neutral, you are an enemy of God. Think about that for a minute. You say, well, is he talking about lost people? No, this letter is written to believers. He says, when you act according to your own selfish desires, your own selfish ambitions, your own jealousy, he says, you are actually fighting against God. But he doesn't stop there. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, this is interesting. He says... Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? So he says, it, it, acting this way makes you look like the world, actually makes you join hands with the world. That's why you're adulterous, because you're acting more like the world than you are for your, or acting toward the, your allegiance to the world instead of your allegiance to Christ. So he says, you're at enmity with God, you're, you're against God. But then he says this, 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, here's the thing. Here's, the, here's in, in my mind, kind of the, the, the twist of the knife that, that James throws in there. Do you know why the people of God and the church of God sometimes seems to be stuck in the mud and just cannot get traction and can't get out? It's not only because we tend to act according to worldly wisdom and act according to our own selfish ambitions and, and jealous desires and all of those other things. It's not only that, but it's because by doing that, we have put ourselves at enmity with God. But look what it says. It says if we're friends with the world, we are enemies of God. Now, notice that we are enemies of God. It does not say God is our, in, like we, we have God as an enemy. It says we are enemies of God, which means the reason that sometimes we use terms like, well, that church just can't seem to get out of its own way. The reason that you feel bogged down in your spiritual life, it may just be because you're pursuing your own desires and your own ambitions and your own jealous uh, things that you want for you. And what has happened is this. You have not only put yourselves against God and put yourself contrary to God but in fact when you don't fight these desires within yourself and within the body then God will fight against us you have made yourself an enemy of God God is actively fighting against you say well well um well what do we do what do we do to to, to fix this well he's not there yet because James hadn't let go verse 5 or do you suppose it is to no purpose? Now, no, that sounds really soft in English. But it's, it's as if to say, you really think God said this for no reason? It's, it's, it's kind of sarcastic in the way that he phrases it. But he says, um, do you not suppose, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God requires loyalty above all else from his people. And he says, do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously? The, the picture here is God as husband and he yearns jealously over his bride. And when his bride aligns herself with someone else and not her groom, she is an adulteress. And when she does this, it says he yearns jealously over her. Do you suppose it's to no purpose that he yearns jealously? Why? He requires unwavering loyalty from those he created and those he bought. He made you. He made me. He bought you, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he bought me. And he requires complete loyalty to him and him alone and his glory. Now I want to stop right here and say this. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, this also lets us know that there is no such thing as being neutral when it comes to God. There is no such thing. In fact, being a friend with the world, being aligned with the world, living like the world, thinking like the world does not make you neutral with God. You say, well, I mean, I'm not against God, uh, but, but I'm not really for it. But let, let, let me tell you something. If you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you have not given your full allegiance to God, you are not neutral. You're an enemy of God. Well, I thought God loves everyone. God loves his creation. But God hates sin. And God hates it when his creation lives apart from him. Well, what do I, what do, I do? Well, you don't have to remain an enemy of God. See, what, what does God do to his enemies? Well, uh, the wages of sin is death. God, the, the, the purpose or, or what happens with those who are enemies of God is they are destroyed. And yet, the greatest thing in all of history is that those who stand against God are destroyed by God because of their sin. And yet, Jesus stepped in between you and God and went to the cross and paid that debt for you. He died in your place. 
The beautiful thing is this, is he's the only one who could fully receive the wrath of God and then wake himself up three days later. He's the only one who could fulfill the righteous requirement of God, which is perfection, because he died when he didn't deserve it. And he gave it to you and to me when we did not deserve that. And then he rose from the grave three days later. So you are not neutral toward God. You are an enemy of God. But here's, here's the beauty of it. He gives you a way to simply change your allegiance. Move away from your allegiance to yourself and put your allegiance in Christ. It's no longer about me. It's all about him. And what he did for me and what he's going to do for me and his glory and his glory alone. You could do that this morning. You don't have to be an enemy of God. You don't have to leave this place as an enemy of God. You can leave this place with Jesus Christ as your Lord. So he yearns jealously. See, James tells us the problem among the people of God that come about due to evil desires. And those evil desires are left unchecked. They, they lead to evil actions. And it causes the church to be an enemy of God. God doesn't take this lightly among his people. It says he yearns jealously. See, when we're living according to this and these things, we're not serving God, we're warring against Him. Is it any wonder, often, that we can't seem to move off dead center in our own personal lives spiritually or, or, or even corporately? Is it any wonder that we cannot? See, in the church, I said this a few weeks ago, but it bears repeating, because James is still talking about the same thing. But in the church, this looks like people desiring what they want. It looks like us trying to impose our will upon the whole because of what we want. Because, quote, we are the ones who pay for something. Or we like it this way as if to infer that what we like is the purpose for which we gather. And I said this, uh, again, I've said this before, but let, let me set you free a little bit. We are not here because of what we want. We do not gather as the people of God. We don't do ministry in Bowling Green and all around the world so that I can feel good about myself or so you can feel good about yourself. We don't sing songs so that you can feel good about it. Heaven knows I don't preach so you can feel good about it. We do all things for the glory of God alone. And when we say alone, it means alone. There is no other glory. There is no other honor. There is no other majesty to be given to anyone else. It is for Him and Him alone. So, our individual desires are the source of our corporate problems but we hear this and we can say well okay let's make a little slight adjustment James says no no, no let, let me explain to you the depth of how bad you have gotten yourself into something there is no slight adjustment that needs to be made so we don't need a slight adjustment we need a complete return look at verse 6 and this I love this this is like the best phrase in the whole passage but he gives more grace. Greater grace. He gives more grace. While he is jealous, as he just said, he is also gracious and merciful. But get this, he doesn't just offer grace, he offers more grace. Which means he offers grace that is beyond our ability to sin. This is his way, this is James's way of saying, I know how bad you've messed this up, but don't worry. No matter how bad you have messed this up, God's got grace to cover that too. He says, but he gives more grace. But there's a stipulation here. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Notice this. Again, he's kind of reiterating what he said before. God does not simply not give grace to those who are proud. Why would he say proud? Well, pride and humility actually run through the entire book of James. We've heard it a bunch of times. But why would it be pride? Well, selfish ambition, selfish desires, jealousy, all that is rooted in pride. So when he says um, it is that God opposes the proud, notice that. It doesn't say he just doesn't offer some grace to the proud. He actually says, it actually says he opposes the proud. So it's him reiterating again, um, if you're living this way, God is not neutral to you and you're not neutral to God. God is warring against you. He opposes the proud. But he does what? But he gives grace to the humble. To the humble. Why? Because to defer, to give away, to say, you know what? As, as I've used this phrase before, but when we come to a place where we say, I'm willing to, I'm willing to exalt God's kingdom over my own comfort, that takes humility. It takes humility to say, what I want is not as important as what God wants. It takes humility to say, what I may think may be best for me is not as important as what's best for my brother or sister. It takes humility to say what you need is more important than what I think I need. So he says he, hum, uh, he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit. Well, why? Because submitting requires humility. Submit yourself to the Lord. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, I, I'm going to tell you, we don't, we don't have time to get into it. I'd love to take the time to get into it. Just to let you know, um, this verse is taken out of context so often, it is really not even funny. This does not mean that when you feel that you are under spiritual attack, you just speak up and tell the devil to leave you and he'll leave. That's not what this verse means. It means resist the devil. Why? Because when you're acting this way, you're living according to the wisdom of the world, which is what? It is earthly, it is unspiritual, and it is demonic. So what do you do? Humble yourselves, submit yourself to God, and resist the devil. Quit living according to worldly wisdom. And the way you do that is humble yourself to the will of God, and you resist the will of Satan. So, well, that sounds like an active spiritual battle. Do you notice he's used the word war? It's an active spiritual battle. It is an active and constant thing for the people of God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is amazing. Realize as the people of God. See, if, you're, if, you're, if someone's not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, living according to worldly wisdom, selfish ambition, worldly desires, passions that war within you, all of that is something that you do because of your sin nature. You live that way on purpose. And you also live that way by nature. But as a believer, James is telling us that you don't have to live that way. You can actually live the other way. You can resist the devil and you can submit yourself to God. You can submit yourself to the will of God. He tells us you're not powerless. You can overcome this by doing what? He keeps telling us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Why? Because when you're living according to worldly wisdom, you have made yourself an enemy of God. But if you will humble yourself and resist the devil and draw near to God, God will draw near to you. Eastwood, I can tell you this. The number one thing that the church should want is not growth. Number one thing that the church should want is not impact. The number one thing that a church should want is not notoriety. The number one thing that a church should want is the same thing the psalmist said when he said, Your nearness, O God, is good for me. See, growth can come, notoriety can come, uh, all of those things can come, uh, but they come as a secondary thing because what we're concerned with is not those things. We are concerned with the nearness of God. I can promise you this, if all we had was 20 people in this room, but we could feel the Lord's presence, that's all that matters. We desire the nearness of God. He says, draw near to God, He'll draw near to you. And then He gives us what we're supposed to do. See, this is not a slight adjustment. This is not a, well, I'll just stop doing this. He says this. Cleanse your hands. In case you were wondering what he thought, 
you were and I was living this way. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, this word's a word he's used often um, in James. Why? Because it's the difference between living for the world and living for God. He says, you're trying to have it both ways. You're trying to say you're a Christian, but then live according to your own desires. He says, you need to cleanse your ways, you double-minded person. Then he says in verse 9, it seems really dark. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. All that, what is James saying? This is not something you should just say, okay, well, maybe that's an issue. James says, no, you need to be broken over living this way. You need to be broke. It should hurt you that you have hurt God and you've hurt his church. It should bother you to the depth of your soul so much so that he says you need to be wretched and mourn and weep. Where you would have laughed, you need to let this turn to mourning. And where you would be joyful, you need to let it turn to gloom. Why? Because God takes holiness and the holiness of his people seriously. Why? Because if you're going to have genuine faith, you got to control your tongue. you got to care for the helpless and needy. And you got to keep yourself unstained from the world. And James says he takes that seriously. So what do we do? Verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's a command. Submit to God. Submit to God. It's exactly the same thing that I said for those who are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The answer is the same. Turn away from living for yourself and put yourself under the leadership and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Submit yourself to God and he will exalt you. See, what we need is not a slight adjustment. We need a complete return. And the beauty of it is this is that no matter how bad it is, if you're sitting there this morning and you're thinking, man, I did this or I did this, no matter how bad it is, he gives more grace. That's what he says here. He, he gives more grace. And you can come to him. So not only do we need a complete return, but there's a proper, and there is a proper response to all these things. As he said, be wretched and, and mourn and weep. But why should we be that way? Because acting according to our desires reveals the true nature of our hearts. That's really what James talked about this whole time, right? It's that, 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 our, that where, does, where does selfish ambition and, and, and jealousy come from in verse 14? But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, this is something that's in the root of who you are and who I am. He says this in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Okay, so he speaks evil. This is exactly what he said at the beginning about quarrels and fights. That of course, it comes along with slander and backbiting and gossip and all those things that occur when that happens. He says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law, and judges the law. Now, I want to side note, which I'll say a little more about in just a second, but side note, when James says you judge your brother, this term for judgment does not mean when you, in a godly and spiritual way, look at a brother or sister in Christ and in a discerning manner call out sin. That's the, job, that's the church's job. That's what we're supposed to do as brothers and sisters in Christ, is hold one another accountable. The Bible is clear. Say, well, Jesus said not to judge. No, he didn't. Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. And then the very next phrase was, and when you judge, judge rightly. He also said, we well, said, what about the speck and the, 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 the two by four and the plank and all that other stuff? Yes, he said, do not try to remove a speck from your brother's eye when you have a plank in your own. He said, well, exactly. Then he said, first, remove the plank from your own eye so that you may be able to see and help your brother remove the speck out of his own eye. 
He didn't say don't judge. He said don't be a hypocrite. That's what it's saying. So here, that's not what he's talking about. When he says judge, he means like final judgment, like ultimate judgment, like I'm able as the judge of all things to look at someone and say eternally guilty or eternally saved. That's what he's referring to when he says the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Why? Because when we fail to live out the law, it implies that we have an outright denial of the authority of God and the authority of God's law. Why? We set ourselves above it. We set ourselves above the law by saying we're going to do these things. In other words, we put ourselves in the position of deciding what we think should be obeyed and when we think it should be obeyed, and usually it has to do with what's best for us. He says when you do this, you become a judge against the law. Why? Because if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. He's saying you set yourself above it. Why? Because you decide what's right and wrong. Right? There's always people in the church of God who have set themselves up as the arbiter of all truth. That if you don't do it the way I think it should be done, then you're just wrong. And you say, well, I promise you, if you've never heard it before, I I can tell you, I hear it at least often enough to, to remember that there are times when people live a certain way. There are people in the church who will look at other brothers and sisters in Christ and say, well, because they don't do this way, they may not even be saved. You be real careful, real careful about determining someone else's salvation outside of the gospel. Why? Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. He's saying, um, you're setting yourself up to be God. That's what you're doing. But who are you to judge your neighbor? He says, you have absolutely blasphemed God by setting yourself up as that. So you see, he's building a picture of a person. A person who claims Christianity but lives according to their own desires. That claims the truth of God but then sets themselves up as the arbiter of truth. It's the person who claims they are a a, a member of the body of Christ and yet sets themselves up as judge against the body of Christ. James says, be wretched, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy be turned to gloom. Be broken over your sin." This is the call this morning. Are you ready for the Lord to do something amazing in your life and amazing in the life of Eastwood Baptist Church? Heed the call of this text. Have you been putting your own desires at the forefront? Has it been purely about the glory of God or has it been more about what you like or what makes you comfortable? This is not a small issue. Don't sit there this morning and say, well, what I said was in a private conversation or what I said over dinner or what I told that other person is not really that big of a deal or, well, I said that years ago, but, it, but it's really not that because very few people know. Look, the only thing that matters is God knows. God knows what you said God knows the tenor and direction of your heart. God knows what you are harboring inside your heart. This is no small issue. You know why? Because according to this passage, you are not neutral. You are standing against God and the work of God. This morning, if this is you, and I promise you this has rung itself through me a couple of times this past week, If this is you, you need to be broken over your sin. Broken. See, this morning, I will tell you, this was my oversight, not Pastor Dana's. I intended to tell him this week that I wanted to remove the front part of this uh, platform so we had our stairs here. But you know what? When you're broken over your sin, you don't need stairs. This area 
ought to be full this morning with God's people saying, Lord, when I did this or when I said this or when I thought this, God, it was sin routed out of my life. Forgive me. I want to live for your glory. There may be others in here say, Lord, I can't remember a particular instance, but I know I do it a lot. So God, route all of that out of my life. Whatever it is, this altar is open this morning. And if we as God's people will be wretched and mourn and weep and be broken over our sin, I can promise you, if we are not, we will never see, hear me, we will never see true revival. Never. Until we start, as God's people, putting His glory above our own desires, our own wants, our own comforts, and when the cry of Eastwood Baptist Church becomes simply for the glory of God alone. I'm going to pray, and when I say amen, I genuinely, genuinely mean this. I believe this altar and this area up here in the front should be full. You've heard me say this before. The reason we refer to this as an altar, it's not because it's something special. This is just a room. But an altar is a place where things go to die. And this morning, it may be that you need to bring your own selfish ambitions and desires, bring them to this altar, and sacrifice them here, and walk away clean because you have brought it to die. Whether you're um, here on the floor or you're up in the balcony, there are stairs behind you, there are stairs over on the side, whatever you need to do. But I genuinely believe that while I know, well, I can do it from my seat, I, I know that. But there's something special about God's people coming up here and pleading with their Heavenly Father to forgive and to send revival to his people. May we see it. You say, well, I don't know if I can do that. Verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. Heavenly Father. God, I pray that you would have. Thank you for joining us here this morning as we've worshipped together.